Well, I want to say, first of all, that it's a tremendous privilege and blessing to be here. And uh, I'm not worthy to stand in this pulpit. (laughs) The preaching that takes place here Sunday after Sunday, week after week, is the kind of preaching that people are starving to death for all over Mexico and Latin America. And I just want to say that you're tremendously blessed with the teaching and preaching ministry in this church. It's easy to take it for granted, but please don't take it for granted. There are believers in Mexico that are driving for two hours, three hours, sometimes for for even more, up to a day, just to find, just, just to spend time with one of the churches there and hear the Word of God and meet brethren and fellowship together with brethren. And I mean, you have a tremendous blessing here. And uh, so, praise the Lord for that. Let's, let's pray. Father, You alone are God. You alone are holy, worthy, full of might, full of power, glorious in all Your attributes, immutable, infinite, full of love, full of grace, full of wisdom. Praise be to Your name, Lord, because Jesus Christ our Lord is risen from the dead. Because You've given us a living Savior. A Savior who has, as my brother said, has triumphed over death and hell and the grave and sin and the devil. And He lives. And He lives forever. And we can serve Him. And we can know Him. And we can love Him. And we can obey Him. And we can carry forth His Word to the ends of the earth and fulfill His great commission out of love and gratitude for what He's done for us and laying down His precious life and shedding His blood on that cross. Thank You, Father, for for this day, the Lord's day, for this resurrection day, this glorious day. Father, I pray that You would open up our hearts, open up our minds to receive Your Word, to receive the things that are from Your Spirit that must be spiritually discerned. Father, I pray that You help us all. I pray that You save the lost. I pray that You edify Your people. I pray that You help me to speak, that You give me words, that You give me clarity that You help me, Father, to speak faithfully according to what is written in the text of Your Holy Word. And may You be glorified here, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 22 to 40. It's a fairly large passage of Scripture here, but this is a glorious sermon, an extract of a glorious sermon that was preached by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. He says here, verse 22, Men of Israel, 
Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Amen. Peter here is proclaiming the gospel to a group of unconverted Jews on the day of Pentecost. There's some glorious and precious truth here in this passage. What is the gospel? It's a basic question, but it's an absolutely foundational and essential question. How would we define the Gospel of Jesus Christ? I would define the Gospel like this. The Gospel is the good news of what God has accomplished in the person and through the work of His Son Jesus Christ in order to save wretched sinners. 
The gospel in the first place is not a message about what man should do or about what man must do. The gospel requires a response on the part of man, but the response itself is not a part of the gospel. The gospel is the accomplishment of the mighty God. It is God's accomplishment and what God has accomplished in the person of His Son. We believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we believe that there is a distinction between the persons of the Son and the Father in the Godhead. But we also believe that they're one in essence. And that's why Jesus was able to say, I and my Father are one. And what Jesus has done is the Son of God is what God Himself has done in the Son. God has spoken to us in the Son, it says in Hebrews chapter 1. God has accomplished redemption for us in and through the Son. The Gospel is what God has accomplished for us in the person of His Son, through the work of His Son, in order to save. The Gospel is a message about salvation. It is glad tidings. It is glorious good news about how you can be saved from your sins. But a lot of times when we're talking about the Gospel, we confuse the Gospel with other things. I've heard people stand up and say that they're going to preach the Gospel. I heard a sermon one time that was over an hour long and this man stood up and said about five times, I'm going to preach the Gospel. And he began to expound on God and the character of God and the nature of God and the holiness of God and the greatness of God and the power of God and the judgment of God and judgment day and the fear of God. And he opened up the law of God and expounded on the commandments of God. And he talked about the depravity of man and the inability of man. And he talked about how it is impossible for man to be reconciled with God of his own accord. And he talked about the necessity of repentance. And he talked about saving faith and he talked about the new birth and then he ended his message and I thought I heard everything except the gospel now the doctrine of God the doctrine of man the doctrine of sin the doctrine of conversion the doctrine of salvation all that is a necessary and important part of the gospel message but that is not specifically the gospel the gospel is what philip preached in samaria it says that philip went down to samaria and preached christ he preached jesus christ Paul said to the Corinthians, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Gospel is about the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension and the glorification and the triumphal reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ isn't in the message, then the message is not the Gospel. 
You can say you're expounding on the whole counsel of God, but if you talk about it all except what the glorious Lord, the Son of God, has accomplished at the cross of Calvary, then the message is not the Gospel. So what are the essential truths of the Gospel? What is necessary to believe about the Gospel in order to be saved? If the Gospel is a message about salvation, what do we need to believe in order to experience that salvation for ourselves? How should we present the Gospel to unbelievers? What are the things that we should be emphasizing when we share the Gospel with others? All these questions are important and necessary, and indeed they are solemn questions. And all of them can be answered by studying how the apostles of the Lamb themselves presented the Gospel in the book of Acts. Peter gives us a picture here. I don't want to give a survey of all the apostolic proclamation of the Gospel in the book of Acts. We don't have time for that. But I want to highlight just one element that stands out front and center in all the preaching of the apostles in Acts. We can find here that they expound on the doctrine of God. We can find, contrary to what some have said, we can even discover here that the apostles allude to the doctrines of grace in their evangelistic messages. They expound on the sovereignty of God. And they speak of many things. But there is one theme. There is one message that jumps out over and over again in the primitive apostolic proclamation of the Gospel. And that is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles were proclaimers of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. They were heralds of the resurrection of Christ. And I'm here today to say that Jesus Christ, just as the apostle said, I say, He is risen from the grave. He is not dead. He's not in the tomb. You can't find Him there. They've never been able to present His body because His body can't be found there. His body is risen. It is immortalized. It is glorified. It is ascended. It has sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And He is reigning. He's reigning in glory. And He's coming back. Now the panorama of primitive Gospel proclamation that is opened up for us in the book of Acts declares that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the heart and soul of the apostles' message. The apostles were ambassadors of Christ's resurrection, and this comes out over and over again. For instance, in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, when the apostles are considering the replacement of Judas Iscariot, who through his apostasy had abandoned the apostolic office that he held, and it was necessary to replace him in order to complete the number of the twelve, Peter, speaking of this, says, Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, 
beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us. It doesn't say a witness to his cross. It doesn't just say, it says he must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now look at the text there. It's evident that the men that they were considering were eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. One of the necessary requisites in order to be an apostle was to be an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But what he says here is that one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. The language of the text suggests there that he wasn't currently a witness to the resurrection and that he was to be constituted officially a witness to the resurrection. And the man they appointed was an eyewitness of the resurrection, but he was appointed to the apostolic office. And the apostolic office was an office of heralding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the primary emphasis, the primary message of the apostles of Jesus Christ was that Christ the Lord is risen indeed. In Acts chapter 3, verse 15, we read that the apostle Peter says to the Jews, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In verse 26 of the same chapter, he says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. In Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, or the text says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There was one message that stood out to the historian Luke under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And one message that stood out to these Jewish leaders, they are proclaiming the resurrection from the dead, but not just that, but the resurrection from the dead in Jesus by virtue of union with Christ, with Christ the Lord as the first fruits of the resurrection. And then we move down to verse 10 of the same chapter. And he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. And then in chapter 4, verse 33, Luke records that with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that's just a few of the texts that are found in the book of Acts that talk about the resurrection of our Lord. But the book of Acts continues like that with Scripture after Scripture, with, with, with instance after instance of gospel proclamation that has its pinnacle in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
The resurrection of Christ, it was the main theme. It was the chief emphasis. It was the keynote. It was the continual teaching. It was the high point, And it was the pinnacle of the apostolic preaching of the gospel. The apostles mentioned the resurrection more than they mentioned the cross and the death of Christ. The, ex- the apostles explain and expound on the resurrection more than they explain and expound on the cross of Christ. And I don't say this to diminish the importance of the cross of Christ. The cross is, 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 is the pinnacle of God's redemptive work on behalf of sinners, no doubt about it. But the resurrection is... The victory shout of what happened at the cross. So I don't say this to diminish the importance of the cross, but to accentuate and to highlight the importance of the resurrection and God's program for the redemption of man so as to impress upon our souls how utterly essential the resurrection is to our eternal salvation. Without the resurrection, we are lost. Without the resurrection, we are dead in our sins. Without the resurrection, the Christian faith is a lie. Without the resurrection, nothing in this book makes sense. Without the resurrection, our hope is vain. But with the resurrection, it's glory. And in fact, this is a point in which there is generally a huge difference between the apostles' proclamation of the gospel and much of the proclamation of the gospel that I hear in our day. When we share the gospel, how much do we speak of the resurrection? How much do we expound on the resurrection? Many times we just mention the resurrection in passing. Because we got to get it in there in order to complete our gospel message. Because if we don't mention the resurrection, then it's not the, the whole gospel. So let's just mention briefly the bodily resurrection of our Lord and then we're covered. But I don't see the apostles doing that in Acts. I see the apostles proclaiming the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God, and then getting to the resurrection and staying there and opening up the meaning of the resurrection and expounding on the theological significance of the resurrection and drawing out the implications of the resurrection and bringing the glorious truth of the resurrection down to bear on the souls of their hearers. Our Lord is not dead. He is risen. And we, when we proclaim the gospel, we are proclaiming a living Lord who is alive right now and who is mighty to save. He is powerful to save. And He's mighty to save because He's alive and because He's at God's right hand and because He's interceding for His own. Now, Why did the apostles preach the resurrection so often? Why did they emphasize it so much? 
because I knew that the whole truth of Christianity rests on the factualness and the veracity of the resurrection of Christ, and they themselves were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, and therefore in testifying to the historic veracity of the resurrection, the apostles were backing up the entirety of the truth claims of Christianity. And by testifying to the factualness of the resurrection of Christ, the apostles were boldly asserting that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. On top of this, the resurrection in the first century was a radical and confrontational message that called for people to make a radical decision. It wasn't enough just to preach the cross. Hundreds, if not thousands of men had died on crosses. To speak of a man, Jesus of Nazareth, and to speak of His extraordinary teaching and of His alleged miracles according to the witnesses and everything that happened, and then to end the message with, and they crucified Him. He died on the cross between two thieves as a criminal as a traitor of the Roman Empire and a traitor of his own people. They would say, the average person in the first century, what's different about him from, than everybody else? What makes him to stand out from the rest? We know others that have died on crosses. We've walked by there. We've seen it. We've smelled it. We've heard their cries of agony. This Jesus isn't the only one who's died on a cross. The message that, Christ, or that Jesus had died on a cross would not make much of an impact on the average person living in the first century. A person could hear about the message of the cross and res- remain in a state of neutrality regarding the message of Jesus. But upon hearing that God had raised Jesus from the dead, nobody could remain in neutrality. Because either it was true or it was false. The proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus demanded a response and a reaction from the people. If the person rejected this declaration as foolishness, then the apostles would declare to him that they were rejecting the risen Lord of glory and King of the universe who one day would judge them and take his bar, his rod of iron, and crush their skull to pieces and banish them into everlasting condemnation. But if the person accepted this message of the veracity of the resurrection, then the apostles would proclaim that he was accepting the divine Savior who had died to save him from his sins. And so... We see the Apostle Paul, for instance, who stands up and he speaks of God. He relates to the people there in in Athens and then he comes out with the resurrection. And immediately there's a response. There's a reaction. Some scoffed and others accepted and others wanted to hear more. And Paul was able to expound more on the gospel message and talk about the cross and talk about what it means and talk about what God had done to save sinners. It was a way to be shockingly confrontational with the message of the gospel in the first century. 
in order to draw the line and to say, who's with Jesus? In Acts 2, we see this in action. We see that the primacy of the resurrection is manifest in Peter's proclamation of the gospel. The first apostolic sermon that's found in the book of Acts is mainly an exposition on the factuality, the truthfulness, and the meaning of the resurrection of Christ. In this sermon, there's only one verse that explicitly explains the cross of Christ, but there are nine verses which expound on the resurrection. Peter presents us here with something akin to a comprehensive theology of the resurrection. He speaks of the historicity of the resurrection. He alludes to the soteriological significance of the resurrection. He speaks of the Old Testament biblical basis for believing in the resurrection. He explains the place of the resurrection and the redemptive historic purposes of God. He proclaims the authoritative import that the full realization that the resurrection brings to bear on the whole created order as the risen Christ has, has realized his, the full extent of his kingly office. And Peter even declares here the spiritual and ethical response that the resurrection demands from sinners. This passage is jam-packed with glorious resurrection theology. We're not going to talk about all that. In the remainder of our time, I just want to draw out a few brief observations from this text. I want to hit some of the most important points that Peter makes here in his sermon. In the first place, Peter emphasizes the historicity of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus was a real historical event. Verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus from Nazareth. He's a real man who had a real humanity. Peter goes on to say, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus. Then he says in verse 32, this Jesus. So in 22, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. 23, this Jesus. 32, this Jesus God raised up. Peter is emphasizing something here. He's emphasizing that the Jesus that rose from the dead is not a different Jesus than they knew in the days of His flesh when He was walking among them and sweating among them and teaching among them and being tired among them and doing miracles among them and eating among them and sleeping among them. This is the Jesus who has a nature which consists of a real, authentic humanity. God raised up the historic man Jesus in the totality of His real humanity. 
What God raised from the dead after the crucifixion there was not the spirit of Jesus. It was not the soul of Jesus. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a hallucination in the mind of Mary and the women and the apostles and and the 500 and all the witnesses. It wasn't a mirage. It wasn't an illusion. It was the same Jesus who they had known, who they had seen with their eyes, who their ears had heard, who their hands had 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 handled that Jesus rose from the dead I love how the gospel of Luke emphasizes that point Luke having a historical emphasis in the gospel account there gives us a glorious passage in Luke 24 that really emphasizes this point. He says in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, this is a part I love, have you anything here to eat? No, he didn't need to eat. He's immortal. He's risen in power. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He doesn't need to consume physical food and nutrients for His sustenance. He Himself is the One who sustains all things by the Word of His power. He doesn't depend on anything for His sustenance. But He says, give me something to eat. And you know, there's fishermen around, and so we can imagine what they had. It says in verse 30, 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. He didn't just eat it, he ate it before them. He ate it in their presence. He ate it in front of them. He ate it in front of their eyeballs so that he could see, so that they could see that this fish entered his mouth. It was chewed, it went in. It entered his stomach. He had a real stomach. He had a real digestive system. He had a real humanity. This is the real Jesus and His real humanity here. Peter emphasizes that. And he also emphasizes that it was really a death and really a resurrection that happened. It wasn't a fainting or a going unconscious and a resuscitation. He says in verse 23, This Jesus you crucified and killed. And in verse 32, he says, God raised him up. He was killed and he was raised. He really died. He was crucified by professional Roman soldiers. They were professional assassins. They had assassinated many people. They knew how to ensure that someone was dead. They, were, they received the specific order and the command to kill him. If they didn't kill him, then it was their life for his life. To disobey the orders of 
an authority in the Roman army would be death penalty. So they're professionals. They made sure his life was terminated. When the soldiers got to his body in order to break his legs so that he would die by asphyxiation, suffocation, because those who were stretched out on the cross couldn't breathe, they had to lift up with their arms and their legs in order to draw breath and inhale air in order to survive. And so the soldiers would break the legs of the criminals on the cross so that they would slunk down and suffocate. They got to his body in order to break his legs and make sure he was dead because they had to take the bodies down soon, and he was already dead. But then one of the Roman soldiers took his spear and pierced his side, and he pulled that thing out. He had pierced his heart, and blood and water flowed out. His heart was penetrated with a spear. He had a giant hole in his heart. Nobody has a giant hole in his heart and survives. He was already dead, and then they made sure he was dead. He was really dead. But on top of this, they placed him in the tomb. They rolled an enormous stone over the tomb. It would be utterly and totally impossible for a man who was resuscitated to go from the inside of that tomb and to move away the stone. There was a professional Roman guard that was placed at the entrance of that tomb in order to make sure that nobody would tamper with it. There was a seal that was put on it that could not be tampered with under penalty of death. And all that ensures that the resuscitation theory is false. He was really dead. Peter emphasizes that he was dead. And he also says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Peter alludes to the testimony of numerous reliable eyewitnesses. And this ensures the veracity of this event. In order for something to be For a testimony to be reliable in the ancient world, there had to be three things. There had to be a witness. That witness had to consist of a plurality. And those witnesses had to be reliable, trustworthy, of integrity. In the case of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all three of those standards are met a hundredfold. He was seen not just by two or three witnesses. He was seen by over 500 brethren at once. And Paul writes to the the Corinthians and he tells them that many of those brethren were even alive in his day. If they wanted to check the facts, they could seek out the eyewitnesses and ask them. And these were men of integrity. These are men of the highest moral character. One of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, James who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, had such a testimony amongst the unbelieving Jews that they called him James the Just and had great esteem for him. These witnesses themselves experience sudden and radical changes after the resurrection of Christ. They go from being cowards to being full of courage. They go from fear to faith. They go from hiding for their lives and terror of losing their lives, and the the very leader of the bunch over here that was cowarding in fear and trembling before a slave girl denying the Lord Jesus stands out just after this event in the open. He stands up and he declares to a multitude of Jews that you crucified my Lord. 
And God raised him from the dead. These sudden and radical changes, this amazing boldness that was evident in these eyewitnesses testifies to a radical event occurred, such as the resurrection. Thousands of Jews were converted here on the day of Pentecost due to their testimony. 3,000. Now wait a minute here. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified, Many of those Jews had been the very ones who were in the crowd who were crying out to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. They had rejected him. They had renounced him and denounced him as a false Messiah. And then all of a sudden, they convert. What's going on? How is it that 3,000 unbelievers, Christ-rejecting Jews and unbelievers get suddenly convinced that He is risen from the dead in such a way that they embrace the gospel message and, and, and allow themselves to be baptized into the name of this Jesus whom they had crucified. They themselves believed it was a credible testimony. This testimony of the resurrection is so strong that the proclamation of the risen Lord Jesus Christ utterly turned the world upside down in the first century. It shook the gates of hell. It established the church of God on earth. It would have been more difficult to convince that first generation of people of the factuality of the resurrection than any other generation if it wasn't certain. But nobody ever presented the body. Nobody ever presented the bones. There's many other other evidences that we could present. There's historic evidences and biblical evidences. But the most powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ apart from the testimony of God's authoritative and inerrant Word itself is the testimony that God the Holy Spirit has sealed to the heart of the believer. Brethren, you know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And you know it not just because you read about it in a book. You know it because you've experienced the power and the glory of the resurrection in your own heart and in your own life. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but that God raised us up together with Christ. By grace we are saved. In regeneration, God, by the miracle of regeneration, He took the power of God's, of, of Christ's resurrection and He implanted it within our hearts and He caused us to rise from spiritual death. Christ in us, the hope of glory, Paul says. It's not enough just to, to talk about the resurrection. It's not enough just to believe in the resurrection. It's not enough just to be a, a fundamentalist or to hold to a sound statement of faith on paper. That does not ensure the salvation of your soul. First Peter chapter 1 says that we are begotten again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
You must be born again. What is being born again? Being born again is not saying a prayer. Being born again is not signing a creed. Being born again is not going to church. Being born again is not even becoming a member of a good church. Being born again is to experience the real living power of the risen Christ working in your heart that utterly transforms you to such an extent that you are made a new creation with new desires and you're set free from the bondage of sin and you're set free to love God and to walk with God in holiness and righteousness and truth and in victory over sin. If you say you believe in Christ's resurrection, then I ask you, do you believe in victory over sin? I'm not speaking of perfection, but I'm speaking of lifestyle. I'm speaking of reality. Do you have the reality of Christ's resurrection in your life? John said, we've seen and we've heard and we've handled them with our hands. The believer can say, I've experienced Him. I've felt Him. I've known His power working in my life. Do you know it? Have you experienced it? We're all witnesses, Peter says. And I'm not a witness. No believer, other believer, apart from the apostles is an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ like the apostles were. But we're witnesses in the sense of being witnesses, having experienced firsthand the glorious, life-transforming power of Christ's resurrection in our lives. Another thing Peter emphasizes here is found in verse 24. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, if there's something we're to understand here about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that it's totally different from every other resurrection of every other person that has ever happened in the history of the world. Others have been raised from the dead. The son of the widow from Sidon in 1 Kings chapter 17 under the ministry of Elijah was raised from the dead by the power of God. And there's other cases. But there's something different about that resurrection and Christ's resurrection. Peter says something here in verse 24 that cannot be applied to anybody else. He says, it was not possible for him to be held by death. It's not possible. Death couldn't hold him. Wait a minute here. Peter, what are you saying? I mean, if we're thinking about death, it's really not possible that anybody would be raised from the dead. But Peter says just the opposite. Peter says it's not possible. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Peter says it's not possible that he would not be raised from the dead. He says totally the opposite of what we would expect. And that's because Christ's resurrection is different. Jesus, contrary to all the rest, had something unique about himself. He didn't have sin. He didn't commit sin. He did not inherit 
the legal guilt of sin which is imputed to all of Adam's race, to all of his posterity. He did not inherit that original guilt, that original corruption, and he did not commit any actual sin in his life. He was the holy Lamb of God. He was without spot and without blemish. And what does Paul say in Romans chapter 6? The end of the chapter, the wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve, and Adam specifically in the garden, in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day you eat the fruit of the, that tree, you will surely die. You will die. It's death. The penalty is death. You break God's law, you must die. Death passes into the world. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. And Christ dies. Wait a minute. Christ didn't have sin. Why does Christ die if he doesn't have sin? He doesn't deserve to pay for the wages of sin. No. He didn't deserve it. But that's part of the gospel. Because Scripture teaches that God took the sin of His people and He imputed its guilt. He imputed that sin to Christ. Christ did not become contaminated by sin. Christ did not become a sinner, but He was treated as if He was a sinner on the cross. And He bore the full weight of the guilt of the whole sin of the whole people of God when He was on the cross and He died as the substitute for the people of God. Substitutionary penal satisfaction, we say. As the substitute, He paid a price and suffered and died in the place of His people. He died not because He sinned. He died because we've sinned. And He died for our sin. But He paid for our sin. And He paid for its fine and full. And He expiated our legal guilt in full. And He buried sin. It went down into the tomb with Him. And He took it away. He took away the sin of the world is the Lamb of God in the words of John the Baptist. So, it was necessary for Him to rise. Why? Because if He died because of our sin and He died because our sin was imputed to Him, but if He paid for that sin in full and didn't have any sin, if the price had been paid in full and that means that sin had no further claim over Him and the wages of sin had no legal right to hold Him. And so therefore, it was not possible for Him to be held by death. Death had to give Him up. He triumphed over death. Through death, He destroyed Him who had the power of death. And through His resurrection, He declared His victory and His triumph over death that He won at His cross. So God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death. How did He loose the pangs of death? He loosed the pangs of death permanently. 
forever. And Christ is the first fruits, is the first one to rise from the dead. And likewise, all his own, all those who are in union with him, will rise from the dead in the resurrection of the just on the last day. Christ's resurrection was his vindication by God. The cross of Christ was Christ's vindication of the righteousness of God. The cross of Christ was Christ's vindication of the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 3, it talks about propitiation. Propitiation is a sacrifice which bears the wrath of God in order to placate that wrath and convert it into God's favor. Christ on the cross died in order to pay for the sin of God's people so that God could forgive His people and remain just because their transgressions were punished in Christ. So when God forgives a sinner... God forgives a sinner in full accord with His absolute and immutable justice. He doesn't have to flex the standard of His holy law. His law is fulfilled when He forgives a sinner and by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ. So Christ died on the cross in order to vindicate God's righteousness. Because if God saves Abraham and God forgives David and God forgives Noah and God forgives all these Old Testament saints... How do we know God isn't unjust by just passing over their sin? Because He placed their sin on Christ and Christ paid for it in full. He was crushed under the wrath of Almighty God on the cross. And He vindicated God's righteousness. But after He died vindicating the righteousness of God, God then in turn vindicated the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And by raising Him from the dead, He was declaring that He is the Holy One. That's what Peter says here in the sermon. The Holy One, he calls him, quoting the psalm. And the context of this in the day of Pentecost, this means that the Jews were in big trouble. They had slew him. They had took him by wicked hands and crucified him. They had blasphemed him. They had denounced him. They had rejected him as a false Messiah. And now they hear these terrifying words that God has vindicated this man, Jesus, by raising him from the dead. Their enemy is raised from the dead by God. And he's on the loose. But Peter doesn't stop there. He also emphasizes that this Jesus has not just been raised from the dead, but He has been raised to the position of all authority. Verses 32 to 36. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Now when He speaks of the right hand of God, He's speaking of the position of authority, of reigning. Joseph in Egypt was delegated the right hand, the position of the right hand of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh told him, I'll give you my ring. I give you my authority. You're my right hand man. He says, nobody will lift a finger in Egypt except at your command. 
God has declared to Jesus, nobody will lift a finger in the universe except at your command. Nobody will say a thing except at your command. He's at the right hand of God. And he says, verse 33, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord. There's a distinction of the persons of the Godhead there. And the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now when he said those words, Terror struck into the heart of the Jews. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, he says. So Peter calls Him Lord. God has given to Jesus the title Lord. Kurios in the Greek text. Now, in the New Testament, this word kurios is used in at least three different ways. It's used in the first place as a simple title of honor. It would be something akin to sir or mister in our day. Peter's not saying that God made Jesus sir or mister. Another way that this title is used in the New Testament is that it is equated with the name and the character and the nature of God Himself. When the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, often it quotes from what is called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Scriptures. And in the Septuagint, the covenant name of God was translated by the Greek equivalent of our word Lord, by this word kurios. And so for instance, in, in this passage in, in Joel that Peter quotes here, that, that's quoted again in Romans chapter 10, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is kurios, and that title is applied to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The Lord upon whom we call in order to be saved is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the covenant God. He is the one true God. But this can't be what Peter's saying either. Because God did not make Jesus God upon His resurrection. Jesus has always been God. And Jesus as God providentially rules over all things. His sovereignty as deity is intrinsic to His very nature. His sovereignty as God is immutable, it is eternal, it is absolute, and it is not derived from anybody. I would agree with Calvin on that point who who coined the term something like autotheos. He is God in and of Himself. He is fully God. He has reigned over all things. He, He rules over all things. He's the eternal Logos. And that's not something he received upon his resurrection and his ascension. That's something that has always been true of him since all of eternity past. 
There's a third way in which the title Lord is used in the New Testament, and it is applied to those in positions of authority. It is used by slaves, and it's what they call their slave masters. It is used by citizens in the Roman Empire, and it's what they call Caesar. It is used by those who they recognize as their superior in authority. And that is exactly what Peter is saying here in this text. It is in this third sense that he's using the word kurios, that God has made this Jesus Lord. Kurios. It refers to Jesus' delegated authority from the Father as the royal mediator of the kingdom of God. God has rewarded the man Christ Jesus with honor, authority, and power, and glory as a recompense for his obedience and suffering. Jesus humbled himself, and like it says there in, in Philippians chapter 2, he became obedient even to death, says even to the death of the cross. And because he obeyed, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him. In what sense is he exalted? He's exalted in the sense of the mediator. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. It is in his role as man that Jesus is mediator between us and God. As the God-man. And it is in that sense that he has had conferred on him the title of kurios of heaven and earth. That's why he says in Matthew chapter 28, when he gives the great commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. It is with that authority that I now speak to you and command you to go in my name. So when God raised Jesus from the dead, he constituted him the mediatorial king as the God-man in order to reign over all and reign forever as God's vice regent in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. His dominion is so extensive that it engulfs the entire cosmos, the entire universe, the whole created order, and it is so enduring that it is an everlasting kingdom. In the person of the God-man Jesus Christ, the throne of God and the throne of man have converged into one. David's throne is God's throne. And God's throne is relegated to the son of David who takes his seat at God's right hand and reigns forever. And he reigns in power and he reigns in grace and he reigns in glory. He reigns in power as Lord. He reigns in power with a rod of iron. He reigns in power as God's right hand, putting his enemies underneath his feet. Being underneath one's feet in biblical and Hebraic terminology signifies being defeated as an enemy. And that alludes to the first gospel of Genesis 3.15. When it is declared that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head under his heel. He puts down all contrary authority. 
He puts down all resistance. He obliterates everything that is against him. He destroys sin. He wipes out his enemies. He reigns in power. He's coming back with vengeance. He's coming back in flaming fire to take vengeance, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, with his mighty angels. And it says that a sharp two-edged sword proceeds forth out of his mouth with which he will slay his enemies. God has made this Jesus Lord and he reigns in Peter later declares in Acts chapter 10, we are all witnesses of all this Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by him as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed. He is appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And Paul declares in Acts 17, 30 to 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The weak Jesus who was crucified and bled and died is the strong, mighty Jesus who rose. And he's the Jesus who has been constituted king of all, lord of all, and judge of all flesh. That's bad news for sinners that refuse to repent of their sin. Because the judge is alive. And the judge is the king. And the judge and the king has all authority. And he only wants to know one thing. If you'll love him if you'll obey Him, if you'll serve Him, if you'll repent and trust in Him and believe Him and treasure Him because He's worthy to be treasured above all things. But those who refuse, those who reject this message of the risen Christ can know with absolute assurance that this judge is alive and he will take his seat as judge one day and you will stand before him and you will give an account. You will give an account even unto every idle word you have spoken, every thought you have thought, every motive you have had, every sin you've ever done. It'll all be brought out to the light for there is nothing hidden that shall not be revealed. And he will judge. And he will judge without mercy all of those who have rejected him. And all of those who have professed faith in him, calling him Lord, Lord, but not doing what he commands. The Jews at Pentecost understood this. They crucified him. They were guilty. They were wretched. They were unclean. They had killed their king. They had crucified the Messiah. They were really, really wretched sinners. And now their enemy, who they hated, is reigning as king and judge and is going to judge them. And when his kingdom is consummated, 
they're dead meat. And they understood that, and that's why they cry out, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter responds, Repent and be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart which leads to a change of life. It's a change of the way we think about God and we think about the gospel. And it's a change of heart, a change of the way we feel about sin and we feel about the things of God, which leads to a change of life. It leads to the, what John calls the fruit of repentance. And repentance is intricately related to faith. There can be no repentance without faith, and there can be no faith without repentance. And many claim to believe in Jesus as Lord who have never really and truly repented. If you say Jesus is Lord, then I ask you, when did you repent? When was your life transformed? When did you abandon your sin? That's his terms. His terms of peace are put down your weapons of enmity, which is everything that has to do with the practice of sin and the practice of that which is contrary to his will. Abandon it all and abandon yourself to him. Thrust yourself upon Christ alone for mercy. And this Jesus who reigns in power also reigns in grace. And in his reign of power, he extends the rod of iron to crush the skulls of his enemies. But in his reign of grace, he extends the scepter of mercy in order to extend God's pardon to all who would be reconciled to God through him. And that's what Peter's saying to the Jews here on the day of Pentecost. And that's why Paul declares in Romans 8.34, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who's to condemn if Christ is the one who is raised, who is, who is there? What's he saying? He's saying that Christ is the one who has all authority. He has been risen. He, is, he, he has been raised. He is Lord. He is reigning with all authority. And if he's the one who's forgiven us and justified us, who has, who has erased our legal debt before God and imputed us with his very righteousness, counting us as righteous just as he himself is righteous, if he is the one who is our righteousness and if he is the one who is the judge who is the only one who can condemn but he's the one who justified it then who can condemn us the answer is nobody so I declare that just as it was not possible for death to hold him I tell you that if you truly trust him with all your heart and Christ and Christ alone for your righteousness then it is not possible for God to condemn you it is not possible for you to be lost. It is not possible for you to perish. It is impossible for you to perish. So sure, so strong, so victorious, so powerful, so complete, so total, so to the uttermost is this salvation that Christ the God-man as Savior and Lord has wrought out for His people that His people's salvation is absolutely indestructible.
when they're truly in Him. And He reigns not only in power and not only in grace, but also in glory. He reigns in glory. And He reigns in glory forever. And His name will be glorified by all forever. By all. He is Lord. You can't make Him Lord. God has made Him Lord. Nobody else has the authority to make Jesus Lord. You do not confer that title on Him. How dare some preachers say to others, make Jesus Lord of your life. He is Lord of your life, whether you accept it or not. And He will get glory from you as Lord. He will get glory from you as you bow the knee and confess His Lordship to the glory of the Father. And He will either destroy you forever in everlasting conscious torment in the lake of fire as you suffer to the praise of the glory of His vindicated justice. Or He will get glory from you as you bow the knee to Him, trusting in Him for salvation, to the praise of the glory of His grace, as you sing the praises of the Lamb forever. This risen Lord, who is our Lord, has given His saints a song that not even the angels of God can sing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and riches and glory and power and dominion forever because He's redeemed us by His own blood. What a glorious song that for all of eternity, our eyes, brethren, our eyes are going to be able to be beholding the risen Lord Jesus Christ. To see Him there. To see Him just like the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1 where he sees Him and he falls at His feet, is dead. His eyes are blazing like a flame of fire. His feet are like burning. Just glorious, shining like the sun in all its glory. John's little pitiful, poor little fleshly eyes couldn't handle it then but when we see him when he comes we shall be made like him and we shall be transformed and we shall be made immortal and we shall be made glorified and we shall be glorified together with him and we shall receive powerful eyes it's sown in weakness the physical body it is raised in power and I believe we will be capacitated even with, with powerful eyes in order to behold the glory of our risen Lord forever and ever. Of course, as we're falling at His feet and worshiping Him. <laughs> and that's glorious. That is a reason to rejoice. No matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what trials we're facing, Christ is Lord. Christ is risen. Brother, when you go out to the streets and preach and nobody responds to the gospel, Christ is Lord. And He's being glorified by the proclamation of His glory. Christ is Lord. The Lamb is worthy. Let us follow Him. Amen. Amen.
let's, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word. Thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ is, a, is the hope of glory. He is our hope, which is not just some vain and, and doubtful hope. It is a living hope you have given us as you fill our souls with joy unspeakable and full of glory as we rejoice in our exalted Lord. Father, I pray that you help us all after this message to have a greater understanding and a more full vision of the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can treasure him and adore him all the days of our lives and glorify him to the uttermost. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for all the faithful brethren serving here. I thank you for its ministries. I pray that you bless this church. I pray that the risen Christ would walk in its midst and blessing and salvation, that you would expand its ministries, that you would expand the depth of its ministry, that you would grant true prosperity in the spirit and that which is truly your will in this place, Father that your kingdom would be manifest, that your kingdom would expand here, that men would be raised up and sent forth and evangelists and missionaries and other church plants from this place. Father, that you would pour out your spirit here and empower for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.